Hi, I'm Susan Packard, author of Fully Human, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Susan Packard. Susan has helped build powerhouse media brands like HBO, CNBC, and HGTV. She was the co-founder of Scripps Networks Interactive and a former chief operating officer of HGTV. Through her leadership, HGTV became one of the fastest growing cable networks in television history. And today, it's in more than 98 million homes in the United States and distributed over 200 countries and territories. Packard helped to build the Scripps Networks Interactive to a market value of over $14 billion. She's here to talk about her book, Fully Human, Three Steps to Grow Your Emotional Fitness in Work, Leadership, and Life. Susan lives in Knoxville, Tennessee with her husband and family and two female felines named Diva and Dart. Welcome, Susan. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, Bill. Susan, you've had a remarkable career. Who's someone who influenced or inspired you? I find that to be true of every high achiever, that there is at least one, if not several people who you look back on, and someone stands out as someone who encouraged you, saw you in a different way, and just cultivated you to look inside and find the seeds of greatness. Who'd be that person for you? Well, I think of a lot of different family members, but the one that really, more than anything, helped me to understand about what it means to be fully human and emotionally fit, which is what the book's about, uh, was my dad. I worked for him every summer during my high school and college years. Um, He worked at a small direct mail shop. And in the very beginning, I was on the factory floor, so I learned a lot of good lessons there. And then I got a promotion and I worked in the office and I worked for him. Just seeing how he talked to his clients, often having to talk them down, emotional issues that between his company and his clients and how he treated us always with respect. It didn't matter what was happening in his office. He would come out afterwards. He'd have a big smile on his face. He never closed his door. There were just certain things I watched about how he handled himself that I hope that I've been able to emulate. So it's that emotional connection with people who he was dealing with, who were having issues that needed to be discussed, as well as being able to leave those issues behind. Because when you say he treated us with respect, I imagine you're talking not only about all of the workers in his company, but probably your family as well. He was able to leave work at work and be a dad at home. Is that an accurate read? Yes. That is an accurate read. In fact, he always drove me to work and, and, you know, I drove home with him. And even if, as I said, there were issues during the day, he was very easy. His personality was just very steady. And that's a quality that is key to emotional fitness. It's interesting that you say steady because steadiness and the ability to stay calm in the midst of a growing business, especially a small business with everyone having lots of responsibilities, requires a belief system that allows you to keep your center when there may be chaos going on all about you. What do you think were one of the tenets of those beliefs that allowed him to be the eye of the storm with lots of things going on around him? 
Well, he was first-generation Italian, oldest of six kids, uh, very raised in a very religious Catholic upbringing. You know, he, his principles, his values were so clear. He wore them on his sleeve. You know, his family, hard work, and um, his religion. You know, there were just sort of three tenets of how he lived his life, and uh, he was just consistent in living them. So there's a moment that I'm thinking of from your book, Fully Human, where there was a moment of, of peace and quiet when you were on a Santa Monica beach, and you were thinking about an opportunity to take a promotion that would have meant a bigger salary and more responsibility, but it would have come at the cost of relocating and uprooting from LA. Describe those moments from your perspective and a little bit of context of what was going on for you when we're contemplating that and made an unexpected decision. Right. Well, up until that point, I was 29 or 30 at that point, I had always jumped at chances to advance and I would throw my hat in the ring and and up until that point, everything had gone well and I had gotten these various opportunities. When this one came along, it was for a VP job and the, the, the VP jobs at this company were really hard to come by. Yes, I was living in Los Angeles at the time and newly married and I sat on this beach and I just, it was, my stomach hurt thinking about this, you know, just trying to play it out. You know, what would this look like? Because I knew my husband loved Los Angeles. I thought of my team who really, I didn't have a successor for, you know, I had a small team, but um, who was going to step up and, and do that work? You know, it just, it, and it just didn't feel right. And I ended up that following Monday morning, pulling my name out of the competition for the job. And it was like when I did that, there was this huge relief. You know, sometimes your body tells you things if you listen to it. And, you know, I, I, it was like I, I relaxed after I did that. You know, it was like the first time in my whole career that I'd made a decision for a larger body of people than just me. And which sounds very self-serving, but I think when we're in our 20s and we're building our career, we tend to be that way. And, I, and I'm really, I'm grateful even today as I look back on that, you know, how would my life have changed? How would our marriage have changed? You know, any of that. And it's interesting because so often people who are leading companies or looking to make decisions to advance their career within a larger organization have that just single mindset that when opportunities come along, you have to jump at them because it's rare. Um, who knows when the next one's going to come along? It's a scarcity thinking mentality. And you were able to take a step back and say, you know, all those things might be true, yet it's not right for me. Yeah. And I, I feel very fortunate because I wasn't trained in the tools that I offer in the book. This was an emotionally fit moment, my first one, really. I just feel fortunate that I, I made that decision. We can all take moments like that and, you know, have reflective time on important choices that we need to make in life and work. Looking at time as a resource that really helps you to navigate your life wisely is something that I recommend. Susan, how do you define emotional fitness? Well, I define it first as, as far as how it feels. It feels like a place of steadiness, peace of mind, and joy. From my perspective, this was what I always sought when I was working and when I had various leadership jobs. You know, it's, as far as what it is, it's a practice of three steps that are in the book. And I say it's a practice because you can't just do these three steps once and all of a sudden you're emotionally fit. 
much like physical fitness, you can't go to the gym once and you're physically fit. Um, it's a life practice. It helps you to make wise choices and sort of access that wisdom part of you to stay steady and calm in the face of a lot of crises that happen when you're in a leadership role, any leadership. The three steps that you describe are being able to embrace willingness, be trustworthy, and adopt we principles. Is that right? Correct. In addition to being a corporate speaker where you, you travel across the country sharing your experiences and these principles, you also do coaching with executives. What from your experience is an example of working with someone and helping them find that willingness to be emotionally fit when it's often not held up as something that is desirable or could even be a, a perceived as a weakness? Right. How do you help someone find that connection? They can only do it if they are motivated to want to improve in some way and grow in some way. You know, as far as willingness, it's this idea that you can grow in self-awareness. And growing in self-awareness, we all could afford to do more of. You know, let's identify first what you feel are things that might be holding you back from being as successful as you want to be. I mean, if somebody engages with a coach, it's because they want to grow in some way. So where, which, you know, where do you want to grow? And often people just need to air out things that have gone on in their lives that have kept them stuck. When they talk about those things and are willing to that have kept them stuck, it's amazing how those experiences and feelings, you know, lose their power over the person. It's kind of therapeutic. I mean, I'm not a trained psychologist, but having mentored people my whole career informally, you know, in the, my leadership roles, and now more formally, the ability to actually have a, a, an open, honest dialogue with someone else you trust is really an important part of getting to emotional fitness. Susan, I can hear the people nodding as they listen to your words. <laughs> <laughs> I think that so many people can relate to feeling stuck or confused or that there's something holding us back that we're not quite sure how to deal with. And if we just put more effort in, if we just put in more hours, it's not going to get us to that point of satisfaction or release that allows us to really see a new perspective and to operate at a higher level. Because of our culture more than anything, where we prize work fast, work overwork, be a workaholic, all of these things to succeed, quote unquote, and we don't prize quiet still time, which is where, you know, no one wants to do it, but when you do do it, whether it's moments of sitting on your back porch in quiet before maybe you have dinner or whatever the case may be, whether it's taking a walk in nature or meditation or prayer or any of these things that slow you down enough that you can settle into yourself and really see yourself more clearly. This is what a lot of people avoid and it is so helpful, but they avoid it. And I avoided it for, you know, until I was 39 years old mm. when I, you know, and that's when I started doing this work, which was very transformational for me. You know, we don't really want to do that. We, you know, we'd rather do what we've been trained to do, but it doesn't help us to really understand the more important questions. Like, what do we stand for? What are our principles? What's our job mission? You know, those questions are what make you a great leader. Susan, what you described so clearly is a person's comfort zone. 
And unless they get out of their comfort zone to do things that they haven't done, they'll always get the same results. And what you're describing also so well is that it's the method that people are not necessarily embracing. It's the method of sitting quietly on your back porch, the method of taking some deep breaths or some guided meditation, because the outcome of those methods is something that all of us want. Increased clarity, greater confidence, the ability to act with conviction and lead people from a place of authenticity. Those are the things that are so powerful. And I know that you've run some very, very large areas of responsibility. So from your perspective, how is it that companies grow so large and oftentimes so successful without paying attention to building a healthy culture? Yeah. And that gets back, in my view, to the emotional intelligence of the leadership team. Yeah, you know, when we look at all the data around emotional intelligence and various levels in organizations, the CEO has the lowest, you know, across the board, which is pretty frightening uh, when you think about it, because this is the way we interact with each other in the workplace. This is how we build successful, sustaining cultures. If that level, if that CEO or executive has low EQ, then they are going to be hard-pressed to be able to interface in a healthy way with their employees. They won't be accessible. They won't be likable. I mean, they'll be barely human, is what I say, when, when they're like that. People want to work for people that they respect and trust and find some connection with you know, to be motivated by those kinds of people. And they don't, and the CEOs don't have to be cheerleaders. They can be introverts, but to at least have enough humanity to be out on the floor, to talk to everybody, you know, to connect with one another and to encourage each other to do that. That Those are the signs of healthy, sustainable cultures. Who's an example of someone who leads an organization like that, who you've known or perhaps even worked with in order to help that person become more vulnerable, to be able to lead by example, and knowing that the time invested in that role models for the rest of the organization? Well, certainly my boss was that way, Ken Lowe. So he was employee number one at HGTV. It was his idea. And then he hired me. And we fanned out and hired a bunch of people. Ken was one of these people that he never was too busy for employees and never too busy. And I don't mean just his direct reports like me. He was never too busy for any employee. His assistant knew his schedule and knew how to schedule time, you know, whether it's just 10 minutes, 15 minutes. I mean, it may sound very um, dysfunctional if you're running a company, but the fact is, most people. Don't take advantage of it, but knowing that it's available to them. And we did things like we, you know, when new employees came on board, we always had breakfast. In the beginning, it was one on one, but then eventually we did, we had so many people that we would do group breakfast. We did a lot of communication, which we would call, um, you know, all team communication, where we'd have we'd throw, you know, by lunch and talk about what's going on in the organization. We just were very, we overly, we were overly communicative. You know, it's the last thing anybody wants to do in leadership because they want to get their work done, but actually you're getting your work done because you're solidifying your relationship with your employees. They don't feel they're left out. 
They feel that they're building the business with you. And inclusion like that builds trust and it builds alignment as well. Susan, while you were writing Fully Human and reviewing your experiences, looking at the different notes that you had and reflecting on it, what would really be, make it useful? What was the biggest surprise that you found while writing the book that perhaps you weren't aware of as you were experiencing your own evolution and journey? The biggest surprise was that it's a very different experience from my writing my first book, New Rules of the Game, which was essentially focused on how we succeed in our outer lives. You know, the, the, the way we carry ourselves, communication, those kinds of things. This book is a much more of an introspective uh, look at how we succeed, which requires having a strong inner life. In writing it, maybe because it was more personal, but it was much more fluid. Um, it felt, if you will, almost like there were days when I didn't, I wasn't even doing the writing. I know that sounds crazy, but I was in such a good place to write about it. Before I would begin, I, I did a, a quick a session of um, meditation, which helped me to open up my right brain, which is where all of our creativity and vision and all of those things in our connection with other people. And I never did any of that with my first book. My first book was right out of corporate. So, so there you go. So why is it that, from your perspective, that middle managers who are in the thick of things, bombarded on both sides with projects, deadlines, responsibilities, often have higher EQ than the leaders of organizations in the C-suite? Well, the, the middle managers have both have to manage up and have to manage down and manage sideways. You know, they have, they're um, in the eye of the storm, if you will, in an organization. And um, <clears throat> so they have responsibilities and accountability to all levels of the organization and, and their colleagues as well who are on their team. So um, that, you know, there are certainly middle managers who don't have high EQ, but they don't tend to make it um, up into the corporate suite um, unless they are a specialist. So you have certain types of specialist um, positions that um, people are just really gifted with a certain skill and they may not have high EQ, but they can still uh, make their way up there. At the, at the CEO level, um, you know, presumably at some point, because you would think that for the most part, they had to go through navigating um, an organization and through middle management to get to a C-suite job. They um, did have get good EQ, but what happens is when you get into that job, you have such large responsibility for really fewer things, but they take more time. So if, for example, you know, you have a public, you're a publicly traded company, you have a responsibility to your shareholders and to your board, um, that all of that and the management of that and the preparation of meetings for that and all of that takes time which has nothing to do with the rank and file of your organization. Um, so that's one, one area where a CEO has uh, responsibilities that are really pretty enormous. I know with my experience um, at HGTV, again, preparing for those meetings, uh, making sure that our numbers made sense and then sharing them publicly and then going out and then, you know, going to talk to, um, 
analysts and whatnot. So so that's a big part of it. So let me just jump in. It sounds like it's an essential skill for advancing your career, having high emotional intelligence, yet it's often observable that people in the highest levels either lose that, not probably don't lose that capacity, but they lose the exercise of that EQ. Is that accurate? Yeah, they lose the prioritizing of it. They they no longer prioritize it as being um, key for their navigating their or their organization successfully. And you know, and some truthfully, some of that is arrogance and ego. And you know, what ends up happening, of course, is that these people, these um, leaders, are inaccessible and not relatable. And um, it's hard for the rest of the organization to really get behind people like that. Let me put it this way. And we all know the executive who, despite an arrogant exterior, is very much capable of affection and intimacy and caring. However, these feelings don't usually involve anyone else. So that joke, unfortunately, is on us. So let's change our our focus just a little bit now to building trust. Okay. One of the areas that trust is so important in is being able to give people a sense of your presence and attention, even when you have a lot of people to oversee. What's your experience with building trust when you come into an organization and now suddenly you're responsible for a large group of people? What are some of the, the early smart moves that executives with high EQ would make in that situation? The wise moves, and I guess you would say that they're high EQ moves too, would be, um, first of all, get to know your people. And the way you get to know your people is individually. That means that you spend some time, whether it's coffee, lunch, working with them on a project, you know, to get a sense of their capabilities and really what makes them tick and what's important to them and understand what their goals are. You've certainly done this as you've built large teams at the networks and other responsibilities. What are a couple of your favorite ways or questions to really get beyond the surface of, hi, what's your name? What are your responsibilities? What are some of the questions that you like to ask in order to build that kind of knowledge and getting to know someone and building that mutual trust and respect? Well, questions like, what is it about your job that you love? And you know, if you when you ask a question like that, and if they have to really think about the answer, um, that can be an early, yeah, an early warning signal that you know you may be challenged with this with this person. But on the flip side of that is, what are the things about your job that frustrate you? To be air, to air that kind of information early in a relationship helps the whole helps you as a manager. And also helps the whole team because likely if you hear it from one person, you'll hear it from others as well. And then, you know, for me, I, I like to know somebody beyond their work. So I like to know, um, you know, what is it that you, what do you do when you're not working? You know, what are some of the things that you love to do? What are your hobbies? And if, you know, if they're comfortable and ask about their families, ask about if they, um, if they, you know, what's the last you know, which vac- what vacation is your favorite vacation that you and your family went on? And you can get them to, to start talking about that. And it helps that it helps the, me, it helped me to bring their family alive, you know, in through their eyes 
And so I had a much better sense of what they were all about. That's a great point because you're actually relating person to person rather than through your roles when you get into questions like that and you're having a real discussion. Yeah. And I think it's, um, you know, it's a fallacy. You know, you do the best you can, but to keep your personal life completely out of your work life is a fallacy because you spend so much time at work and um, it's hard to, 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 to separate them. So why should you? I and mean, some of the people, I remember one of the women that I interviewed in the book, who's a CEO, and she, she had an open calendar where she would ask, she had her assistant schedule lunches or dinners with employees, didn't matter what level they were, and if they wanted to bring their whole family, they could. And that was a way for her to get to know, um, you know, that individual. And I thought that was a terrific idea. I would be curious to know whether she was ever surprised by somebody showing up with 10 other members of their family for a dinner like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, she didn't give me that kind of detail. <laughs> but still, you know, I think that the, the intention there is really a noble one. So, Susan, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? <laughs> I guess. So think back over the past six months, and what's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? I'll tell you one that I've stopped, and that is a second-guessing kind of a habit that I had started to really, I found myself in that trap of, you know, reliving a situation or a conversation I'd have with somebody that I was coaching, a presentation, an interview, whatever the case may be. And I realized I was doing it and it's so unhealthy and it is very low emotionally fit behavior. And so fortunately, having been very uh, intimate with the three steps of emotional fitness, I caught myself. It was a self-awareness moment. And I stopped. And to be really specific about it, it's not the reviewing it for learnings. It's the reviewing it in ways that kind of undermined your confidence or questioned as to whether you did the right thing or said the right thing. It was that was the nature of the the second guessing, right? Exactly. Oh, I love. No, I mean all the. I'm good about the learning. It's when it goes beyond the learning into I could have because that's really unproductive. Great distinction. So I'm going to mention a few behaviors now from Dr. Williams uh, Woolery at CMU, and I'm going to go through them and tell me whether you think that these boost emotional intelligence, either a high, medium, or low recommendation you have for people to use these. Okay. Does making teams larger lead to higher emotional intelligence of the group? Sometimes. That's okay. So explain why. Why sometimes? Yeah, sometimes because it's important for you to have a mix of gender, which helps with your collective EQ in a team. So if, for example, you just have women, you'd want to add a man. If you just have men, you'd want to add a woman. So that's why adding uh, makes sense. Okay, adding with specific goals in mind. Correct. All right, so how about assigning a woman a leadership role in a group? Does that lead to boosting the EQ of the group? In a, in a high way, because women are known to be um, collaborative, and they do a good job of pulling others out um, who may be quiet, who may be introverts. If you are going to assign 
someone the lead role. Assigning a woman their lead role is, is, is a positive thing. What about establishing specific EQ norms that address how people relate to each other in the group, how they listen, whether they're paying attention? Is that a high, medium, or low move to boost the EQ of a group? It's a high move. So if you are a part of a group, and often you're part of a group that if it's a task force, for example, you have another job that's called your day job. So you're managing a lot of things. And establishing norms like uh, communicating about if you have a conflict because of your day job and making sure people in advance know that um, and you know send it send it to the group, which in whatever way you communicate internally, that those kinds of things are really quite important for the emotional health of the group. Does it boost the EQ of a group in general to hold a kickoff meeting? Yeah, I, I would say that that's about a, that's a medium. You don't have to hold a kick a kickoff meeting. It it's a it feels good to do that. It feels like you're connecting on a from a from the standpoint of you know not just head to head but heart to heart when you do that. So it's not critical. But it, you know if you had a, a question of whether or not you should do it or not do it, I would say do it. And what would be one thing that a leader who's holding a kickoff meeting should always remember to deliberately, by design, boost the EQ of the group if they're going to hold a kickoff meeting? It would be it would be important that every single individual got a chance to talk about what they're doing today and either are in the team, did they sign up for the team, did someone else put them in the team, the history of why they're even there that day. And hopefully what you're going to hear is that everyone is there because the, t- the subject is of interest to them. Susan, talk us through an example of a time when a brand actually lost trust. There's an example in your book about the Z channel that you were given to manage. Describe what the situation was, why it had appeal and had built a relationship with people, and then what decisions were made that shook that foundation of trust. So the Z Channel was based in Los Angeles, and it was the movie lover. Anyone who loved movies loved the Z Channel. And of course, that community had a propensity to love movies with Hollywood there and um, the LA Times and the critics and Hollywood Reporter. The reason that they loved it is that it showed all movies all the time that were every single kind imaginable movie, first run, black and white, foreign, etc. People loved this channel, this little channel. It was only in LA. It wasn't making money. Um, and so I was brought in to try to help turn that around. There were new owners to the business and we got together and we talked about ways to turn the channel around and we needed to broaden it. So we broadened it by adding first run sport like the Dodgers and the Clippers. And at the time, it seemed like just this brilliant idea. We ran, we ran all these spreadsheets on, you know, how many more subscribers we would get by adding the sports enthusiasts. Can you share what the numbers were or even the range? So we have an idea of how big of a jump you were looking to achieve in subscribership. So, you know, we were we were at um, three or four hundred thousand and we thought that we would double, you know, to close to a million if we just looking at all the data on ESPN viewership and um, what was available to us. Anyway, long story short, you know, your spreadsheets are as good as um, your strategy and your wisdom. And we had very little wisdom um, in that. We didn't ever ask our viewers 
what their point of view was on this new huge change. So, you know, they would be watching a movie and then the next thing they know, up would be a basketball game and we'd lose. There was no flow. We, we lost all kinds of um, the existing foundation customers. We lost a bunch of them. And in the whole, it was just, I would say I look back on it and I, would, I was young. I was 29. So, but even though I was young, um, what I learned is that you always, your customer comes first. You, anything you do, you have to start with your customer and you have to keep your customer in mind. And if you're wanting to change your product, talk to your customers. And we didn't do that. And as a result, that sweet little diamond in the rough idea and channel called Z Channel went away and it became, gee, here's a surprise, a 24-hour all sports network. Well, I think your point is well taken because we have listeners who are tuning in here and understanding that this is a place to come for ambitious small business leaders to gain insights into how to lead their business more effectively. And every one of them is going to encounter a situation at one point in their career, maybe soon, where they, they're faced with a situation to go after a big goal like you were with the Z channel, doubling the subscribers. And by leaving out that voice of the customer, now this is a reminder to not make that mistake. Yeah, that's my hope. And I think by you asking that question, hopefully your listeners will, will. And, you know, if you're running a business and you're not thinking about your customers, you're just not going to be in business for any length of time. One of the things, just real quickly, one of the things that um, I find when I go out and I talk to entrepreneurial groups, you know, that are um, starting up businesses, is you start up something you personally love, but make sure that more than just you loves it. <laughs> and I'm being a little bit, you know, facetious here, but, you know, make sure that you really do have promise of a large market, large enough market to sustain your business. I think everyone can relate to that, Susan, who's ever had a conversation about marketing, where someone in the group, a stakeholder, a higher manager up, believes that something is really important. You know, this picture, this color orange, these words in the headline. And the only way to dislodge that, I think, is with actual customer data. Hey, we surveyed this, we did some A-B tests, and here's what we found. Right. And I think that's the only way to really counter that because you can't just go head to head because people who are higher up have more to their vote. Is that your experience as well? Absolutely. And I remember too, when we were um, launching HGTV and we had an old logo and we looked at that and then we looked at um, a bunch of different creative executions. And then we asked our customers and um, we weren't really surprised by the response, but you know, that discipline, having them feel like they're a partner and the building and, you know, the, the success of your business is very powerful. And all of us know that when we're invited, it's so important to remember to ask. Without a doubt. So, Susan, as you were writing your book, Fully Human, what would you say is an aspect of the book that surprised you as you were writing it? I think what surprised me was I started, I went about it in a very similar way to New Rules of the Game, my first book, in that I interviewed people. It was a little bit my story. I had CEOs in it, same elements as the first book, but the feeling of the writing was very different. 
it felt much more uh, intimate and fluid. And one thing that I did differently is in this, I had taken up practice of um, meditation and Every morning now, I spend a few minutes in meditation and just sort of try to open up my right brain and doing that. And it made the writing easier. Does it seem to be easier, harder, or about the same for you to find opportunities to exercise both left and right brains, your heart as well as your head, running a small business now as compared to when you're running a larger enterprise? It's a really good question. You know, the, the dynamic is so different so I don't go somewhere every day where there's a bunch of people. Um, I go to people, I go to clients, or I go to organizations where I'm coaching. Um, I go to speak, you know, so I, I do do those things. And, um, and so it's just a different use of EQ, if you will, and a different way of connecting with people. And I, by the way, it's it's been very, I mean, I've really expanded my own um, ability to, in everything, because, you know, in not having a big staff and a big team of people, being much more self-sufficient and um, much more independent. And I love that. Um, so there's, you know, there's good, it's good in both. And then there's areas, you know, just depending upon what comes naturally to you, um, areas of challenge in both. I know. I also left a large organization, Apple Computer. It's Apple, not Apple Computer. <laughs> when I left Apple, it was suddenly, I have to work to get someone to return my phone calls. Uh, it suddenly, you know, there wasn't the whole support infrastructure behind me. And I had a similar experience. You have to become much more independent, much more resourceful, and much more disciplined with the way you use your time. Absolutely. You know, it's a way for us to continue to grow. And, you know, as long as we're on the planet uh, and we're growing, then um, I think we're in good stead in terms of having peace of mind and, and, and feeling good about our lives. If you could imagine being in front of a room of small business leaders who are looking to grow their companies and create better workspaces and workplaces for their people to operate in, and you had just a minute or two to share with them the most important step that every business leader should be exercising and putting at the top of their priorities in order to become fully human and to cultivate these characteristics in work, leadership, and life, what would you tell them in just you know 60 seconds or so? Yeah. And I, I know what your question is. I mean, I understand your question. The problem with it is that you can tell them anything, but then you have to live it because unfortunately there just have been too many, at least for me, too many experiences where I get promised something by a leader and, and they don't live it. But just to take your question and, and answer it, what I would say is make sure you build a titanium strength culture and make sure that you know what the people in your organization are about, how they tick get to know them personally, um, spend one-on-one -on -one time with them, uh, make sure that you have a set of values that the organization, you know, what's the mission of the organization, those kinds of things. And um, if you have those elements in place, then the rest of it comes along. But if you don't have the people behind you understanding what their mission is, buying into the mission, then it's very hard to be successful.
Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. You've shared so many great ideas about how to be fully human at work, in your leadership, and beyond. So Susan Packard, before we say goodbye for now on this interview, tell us where we can find out more about you and your work. Yeah, and thank you, Bill, and I appreciate um, you having me on your show. The best place is at my website, www.susanpackard.com. Susan, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app, so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.